We are in the middle of a series on the gospel according to Luke. We interrupted that series because, I don't know, pandemic return uh, seemed to have been a slight distraction for us or a slight, um, we needed to get some of our bearings. So we did a mini series entitled The Discipline of Hope. And now we're going to return back to the gospel according to Luke. And we have on our panel that I'm going to interview. This is Pastor Tom and then this is Sidney Sundar. Everybody say hello and welcome to them. Thank you for. And uh, so we're going to be uh, conversing and discussing the parable of lost things, which is one of the most um, well-known segments in Jesus's teachings. Before we get into it, let me just say a quick prayer so that we can get our minds and our hearts ready to receive. Because some of this stuff, not all of the stuff that Jesus teaches is really amazing and awesome. So we want to have our hearts ready and prepared. So. God, thank you so much for this gathering, for all who are here. Thank you for the young ones and the old ones. Thank you for those who are joining us electronically and distantly, and for those who are present and physically here with us. Regardless of how, we are together as one body to exemplify your love and your community in this place. And we do so surrounded uh, by your grace and your spirit and immersed in your teachings and your values. Um, so help us to once again discover, rediscover, and be amazed at the kind of life that you have imagined for us. And, and permit us, instruct us, guide us, lead us into exemplifying that life here and now. In your name, amen. Uh, the parable of lost things is a, a section, a portion of the Gospel of Luke, which is um, it's kind of in this middle of the series that we are. And I wanted to remind us very briefly that the journey that we have been on is um, very much in line with the mission statement that hopefully you're not sick of hearing by now, but it's core and central. We're trying to inspire people to live in the way of Jesus. And so much of what we know, in fact, virtually everything that we know about who Jesus is and what he taught is found in these gospel accounts. And so the reason why we take some time to really dig in is because we actually want to know what did Jesus teach? What was he saying and what did he mean and how can that be applied for us today? Before we get into this particular section, I think Sidney wanted to give us a brief uh, summary as to where we've been, where we have uh, journeyed to this particular point that leads us up to these parables here. That sounds great. Three weeks of not being in Luke is like a century in the, the world that we live in. So just as a recap, right before we got here, uh, Pastor Lamar preached through the parable of the dinner guests, where Jesus is accused by the Pharisees and legal experts of participating in table fellowship with uh, you know, uh, tax collectors, sinners, all the wrong people who, who shouldn't be eating dinner with. And so Jesus' response to those accusations takes the form of the three parables that we see uh, in Luke chapter 15. And I think all of them together are about a theme that's consistent throughout the gospel accounts, but is beautiful and compelling about God's compassionate, intense uh, care for seeking the lost and recovering and reconciling them back to God. And that theme of the recovery of the lost isn't unique to Luke chapter 15. We've actually seen it earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus says, I have come to call the not the righteous but the sinners to repentance. Later in Luke chapter 19, we hear Luke say, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And in Matthew, we hear that same language of, you know, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it's a theme that we see throughout the gospel accounts, but that we're going to deep dive into today. 
Tom, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Oh, I love this story. Uh, I think this is a story that is this too loud for you? It's a story that uh, inspires so many people from paintings. We got the mighty Rembrandt uh, uh, dramas uh, to people. I know it certainly has uh, transformed me uh, when we spend time in this passage. I also think it's a good uh, kind of a summary of the message of grace and salvation. Uh, because sometimes we feel ashamed for what we have done. And maybe we, we feel like we don't deserve forgiveness. Or maybe at other times we feel pretty good about ourselves and maybe feel that some others don't deserve forgiveness. Or at a minimum, they need to pay for what they've done or not done and suffer somehow. And so this text kind of breaks that open to help us to discover who is God? What narrative have you heard about God? When you think about who God is, is it this really over-demanding vindictive, punitive God, or is it something else? And so I would encourage you, this is your passage. Before you start dawdling in Scripture that kind of pollutes and contaminates your view of this glorious, amazing, lovely God, you need to spend time in this passage, and you'll see what Jesus is describing as a God that just loves you dearly, no matter what. So let's start in Luke chapter 15. We'll start in verse 3. Let's go ahead and read this through. Um, Sidney, did you want to read? I mean, can you read? I absolutely. Can you take that? I'm just going to look backwards. Oh, it's right there. Perfect. All right. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to field pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What I'd like to do just to give you some additional geographical context is show this to you, if this will work here. Um, the geographical setting specifically of the lost son is set in this particular location. This is some aerial footage of the um, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. You can see the Sea of Galilee there. You can see a pretty significant city right here called Susita. It's also known as Hippos, the horse city there. And what's significant about this location is that the father and the family live on that shore on the far side off into the distance. And so when it talks about a father looking out and peering out, and seeing and searching for the son, you can see very clearly that he can see to the other side of the lake exactly where his son is. These images also give you a sense of the kind of life that this son was engaged in. If you're a good Jewish boy in the first century, you lived within the community and the synagogue, but here you can see significant civilized development. Uh, think metropolitan, think cosmopolitan, think lots of cultures, lots of language, lots of industry, lots of that going on in this location. So he leaves a place of humble uh, beginnings, a humble kind of life, communal kind of life. Perhaps you might say rural, although those terms don't really map on exactly. And the son leaves that to go to Las Vegas or... Paris or Las Vegas, um, he goes to that location, and you can imagine with the kind of reputation that places like that might have, so too is that in the backdrop, in the background of the mindset of what's going on here. This son not only left the home and asked for an inheritance, but went to go prefer to live that kind of lifestyle rather than the one that is connected to home and to family. And that's a little bit of the background here that I hope is uh, helpful for you. Now, there is so much going on here uh, that we won't be able to cover it all. What I think we agreed to start on is the rhetorical nature of these parables. There's three of them here. Or are there really three parables? There's this discussion as to whether or not there's three or one. Um, what why, why is this setup important and what are we supposed to be paying attention to given that we started with the sheep, then we went to a coin, and then we went to a son? What are some things structurally or rhetorically that we need to pay attention to here? Sure. So if you look at all three parables, they follow a very similar structural pattern, right? You have a main character, we have this thing or a person who is lost. Uh, we narrate the discovery of the recovery, um, of finding that lost thing. 
then there's this grand celebration and rejoicing of the thing that's lost. So that's consistent across all three. The thing that's really clever and strategic about what Jesus does here is that the stakes keep increasing across all three parables, right? You go from one sheep out of a hundred going missing, and you know God cares enough about that one out of a hundred to go and seek it. And then you go to one coin out of ten uh, that is lost, right? And to a peasant woman at the time, even that would have been catastrophic. And then you go from that to one out of just two sons going missing. And so what Jesus is doing here is structuring the parables in a way where you see increasing value and therefore increasing loss and consequences and how important it is to go and seek the recovery of that lost thing, which I think is brilliant and beautiful, as always, in Jesus' form. That was great. Thank you. Uh, can, can I add to that? Uh, you know, we, we call this third parable the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And I think it's interesting we call it that because it kind of makes you focus on the prodigal son. And I wonder if that is the right thing to do. In fact, if you look up the word prodigal, and Merriam-Webster has this word, it means spending money or resources freely and recklessly. But it also means having or giving something on a lavish scale. So we can see in this story that this lost son, uh, who spent all this inheritance freely, is certainly a prodigal. But the irony is that now we see that the father, as we've read the story, it's the father who's truly the prodigal. And you see this throughout the story as the father acted foolishly, even recklessly, in regards to the son. He gave his son a portion of the estate, which he could have kept until he you know, died. He gave his son complete freedom to take it and to leave home and to do with it whatever he wanted. And while his son was away, as Kevin was mentioning, he's up on this ledge and he's looking for this son. And what you got to imagine is you got to understand the culture. The culture would be very disapproving of what this son did. The culture would have also been very disapproving of the father allowing this to happen. And then incredible that you'd actually be wanting this son to come home. You wouldn't want to do that. So his neighbors would think he was really kind of silly. But then one day when we see this son at a distance, he discards his dignity as a Jewish man. He picks up his robe and he runs up that dusty road. And as Kevin was trying to lay out fronts, Jewish men just wouldn't do this. It would be shameful to do that. But he does it and he does it with this uh, reckless abandonment, reckless extravagance. And he then throws that party and it's a joyous occasion with music and live dancing. So some people call this story the parable of the prodigal son. Some theologians think you should be calling it the parable of the prodigal father. It's a different perspective. Yeah, I feel like this is part of our continued problem that we have had multiple times, which is that we will read this story through kind of our 21st century Americanized, puritanical, moralistic lens. And so the focus tends to be on, look at how bad this son acted and behaved. Um, and in fact, I don't know if you noticed this or not, um, but there's this, the older son talks about how this son of yours who wasted your money uh, on you know riotous living and prostitutes, he mentions that, the older son mentions that, but nowhere in the actual story does it even mention that that is actually true. It's, it's almost as if the one who is complaining about the lavish behavior of this son is now adding all of the moral indiscretions that he clearly considers to be at fault with how this person behaved. So it's just adding on to this. It's moral. So 
Tom, what you're saying is the moral indiscretions of this younger son is really not the point of the story. No, I misses it completely. If I could kind of expand on that. I mean, you could, I mean, people focus on that because it's laid out there and it's probably something we like to do. Uh, but the truth is, uh, you should be looking elsewhere. As we've been reading Luke, we've discovered that Jesus likes to make a habit of having dinner parties with all the wrong people. Uh, people like tax collectors, people like sinners, people who don't even try to follow the law. And this just drove these religious folks crazy. People like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And that's the context of the story. That's why when it began, it's looking at the movies, Pharisees and teachers and what they're saying. And this leads to the central point that Jesus is trying to make here in the story. This is a story about how Jesus loves sinners and outsiders so much and with no shame. This is a story about the heart of God and what he wants. Because frankly, his listeners and these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they are already experts in human behavior. Human behavior is their bread and butter. This is where they spend all of their energy policing human behavior. But it was God's love for people that they didn't understand. And this is where Jesus is dialing it in. And to simply focus on this story as the younger son's behavior, I think it's inadequate. It's missing the point of the parable. Yeah, and I would just add to that saying that, like Pastor Tom mentioned earlier, like people attribute so much importance to this parable that some call it the gospel within the gospel, mm. right? So when trying to understand what it means, like one thing that's helpful is, what does the gospel message mean? And to me, the gospel message isn't about policing human behavior. And so when we look at the parable um, through that lens, I think it limits our understanding of what this is really about, which is God's intense and proactive and profound love and care for every single person, every single one of his followers who's lost. Um, and I think that if the focus really was on policing human behavior and not on love, we wouldn't see as much emphasis at the end of each and every one of the parables on that celebration mm -hmm. and that rejoicing, which is such a key feature of the way Jesus structures all three parables that I think that that expands our, our purview of what's going on. Well, and this is something that uh, Pastor Danielle has also taught about, like, who's the celebration actually for, right? right? No, I'm asking. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> the, the celebration is absolutely about the finding of the thing, but it's actually about the person who has done the finding, right? So it's the, the shepherd who has gone out to find the sheep. I mean, the sheep doesn't care. <laughs> the sheep doesn't care about a party, um, but the finder does. Uh, the same thing with the woman with the coin, and especially with the father and the son. The, the celebration is about the goodness and the faithfulness of the father to persist in constantly searching out, uh, waiting expectantly for the son to return uh, return home. Uh, let me see if I can. There's, there's this really kind of amazing thing here, too, if I can find it exactly really quickly. Sorry. Um. In these little pieces, in it, there's these little clues in this story that seem to indicate also that the son's moralistic behavior is also a product of a variety of different factors, too. So not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country. He squandered his wealth and wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Most Americans, when they read that story, notice immediately what 
the moral indiscretion of the son. He squandered everything that he had. How many of you noticed the famine? How many of you noticed that there was also circumstances? How, do you, how many of you also noticed? And if you read this story uh, with to people who have been through famine, who have been through other kinds of circumstances, they will not point out the riotous living. They will point out the famine. Not only that, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and then notice this phrase, no one gave him anything. So in addition to the circumstances, there was also some sort of moral construct of the kind of world that he was living in. Destitute, and no one gave him anything. So you have all these other factors that are also playing into the grand story. Again, to help us recognize that when we are thinking about other people who are off doing what we might think would be riotous living, we also need to recognize that there are these other factors that are at play. There are circumstances. There are cultural moments. There are cultural attitudes. No one gave him... There was this, he was in the Decapolis in a place of Greco-Roman philosophy and nobody had any compassion to help him? Yeah, that's also part um, part of the story, too. We need to be a community that cares for people. Yeah. And whether they're in our midst or they're not in our midst, yeah. to have that compassion. Yeah. yeah. One thing that you had said, Kevin, because I made a note when we were talking about this, uh, that it's so beautiful here that God throws parties, right, for people who come back to him and just how symbolic that is. And a point that you made is God throws parties for people who don't repent, and I'm curious if, like, based off this parable, you could describe... Okay, so let's talk about that, because what we just talked about... I, I, let's say we're all on the same page. People who say, give me my inheritance, I'm going to squander it, I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to have some indiscretion, I'm, I'm going to be irresponsible, I'm going to go off. There's clearly a moral imperative by Jesus for us to have compassion on people such as that. And when people return, and when people... No matter no matter what kind of life, you are welcome. You, this is we are celebrating with the Father the return home. However, there's also a second son. There's the second son who said, "What the he double hockey sticks are you doing? This son of yours did that. I've been here this whole time. I've been following your rules. I've been cooking your food. I've been sowing your fields. What about me?" And I think the inverse impulse, especially for those of us who have deep compassion for those who are suffering and who are marginalized, is to have deep animosity towards people who are religious, who are devout, or people who have it, quote-unquote, all together, or claim, at least claim to have it all together. Um, and I find in this particular passage that the Father's love and the Father's acceptance and the Father's joy is still also extended to that son as well. And I, I, I would say this especially for me and maybe our, I, I would be curious what you guys think about this because I have a feeling that in our particular culture, we are still looking for an enemy. We're still looking for somebody to be the bad guy. So if we are extending, we've been involved in justice conversations and you know outreaches and compassion and, and mercy. Really important work. That's all part of the parable. I have a feeling in some impulses, we are going to, as a result of that work, now begin to look for the bad guy who we can condemn and who we can judge as a result of the work, you know, the, the end result of that kind of marginalization. 
And it feels to me also, and I could be wrong on this, which is why I need your feedback on this, that part of the story, too, is that this father's love and grace is extended even to those people, too. And what causes repentance, what causes people to follow in this way of compassion uh, is not the father's posture of condemnation against this older son, but to say, to extend the same grace to this older son, everything that I've always had is also yours too, including my kindness, including my grace, including my compassion, including my love. So I'd be curious what you think of that. Yeah, I think that's beautiful and it's spot on, Kevin. So Scott McKnight, when he talks about this parable, one of the things he says is, what's beautiful is that Jesus is extending grace both ways, right? So if we look at uh, the character of the older son um, in the position of the Pharisees and the establishment that you know Jesus is uh, is responding to in this parable. It's not like he's putting the Pharisees down and putting sinners up, or vice versa. And we can see that in the way that he treats both the older son and the younger son, right? And it's beautiful to me the father's affirmation to his son, where he says, "You've been with me forever, and you belong at my table too, and you belong at my party too." Um, and so I think the idea of extending grace both ways is just a, a very powerful feature of what Jesus is doing here. But I'm curious what you think, Tom. I think that is all true. But I think we're missing the fact that the parable is intended to actually speak truth to these Pharisees and teachers of the law. So in the story, yeah, the father loves the, the, uh, both the young son and the older brother. But he's also speaking truth to them because they, when they, they're, mutter, they're grumbling and muttering because Jesus is speaking with people that are not clean and pure. And so they sound in many respects, for me, uh, kind of like the laborers in the vineyard. If you remember that story in Matthew 20, where the, the landowner goes and gets workers and he brings them into his vineyard and puts them to the, you're going to put them to work. And they agree ahead of time that we'll pay you one denarius for a good day's work. So they start working, and then the uh, land uh, owner continued to go get more workers in and brought them in, and even brought some workers in in the last hour. And when, it time, when the time came to pay them, the land owner paid them all the same amount, the same one denarius. And it caused these workers to complain and to grumble. And their complaint was not that they got paid what they agreed to. Their complaint was that the others didn't get paid less. Their complaint was that this landowner was too generous. And this, to me, sounds like what is going on with the older son and what is going on with the Pharisees and the scribes. And so this, this lays in. This is what I think the intent of the parable is to so you can see the difference. So the, when they hear the story, if they can comprehend it, they generally don't. But if they could con- comprehend it, they would see the attitude that is going on here and contrast their attitude with the father in the story. Yeah. I think, though, I, I completely agree with you, Tom. I think the, the part that is really effective about what Jesus does, though, is he's able to accomplish that while at the same time leaving out the possibility of hope and love and redemption, yeah. even for that audience. Yeah. Right? Which is like, hey, this is like my like pretty scathing critique on how you're all behaving and the things that you're doing which are anti-kingdom, but at the same time you can be recovered, too. This feels like a persistent tension that um, we will continue to face, I think, for the rest of our existence, is that the attitude and the behavior of these Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious elite, deserves in many ways that kind of exhortation, right? That kind of um, admonishment, I should say, sorry, uh, that kind of admonishment. This is not the way. And the tension is to be able to say that 
while at the same time extending that comes out of the kindness of who God is. Would you agree with that tension? I mean, I'm trying to oh, yeah. make sure that... Definitely. That's what you see in the story, is the father is kind and loving to both sons. Yeah. Uh, you see it clearly with the younger son because he runs to him and celebrates, but you see it in the same way when he goes after the older brother and also is pleading with him to try to come back and he's telling him everything I have is yours. You're not losing out on an inheritance. It's just your brother was gone and you know was dead and he's come back and we need to celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. There's one other aspect of the story that I think is uh, important. Sidney, you were, um, have pointed this out. The metaphorical connection to Israel as a nation or as a people. Um, there are some discussions that not only is this a, a parable about a teaching that we should consider and live by, but it's also some sort of metaphorical connection to the people of Israel. So help us uh, explain what that's all about. For sure. So one thing that N.T. Wright, who we uh, talk about all the time at Spark, um, has argued about a lot of Jesus' parables is that they're actually actually extended metaphors for the relationship between God and Israel. So what N.T. Wright says about this parable in particular is that, you know, we have uh, all of Israel being drawn back to God. Um, even the people who are supposed to be Abraham's representatives here on earth who messed up at some stage uh, are being drawn back to God. Uh, and that parable, the parable of the prodigal son exemplifies that, right? And so Jesus in some ways is retelling Israel's story and Israel's return from exile. So the younger son in this context would, would represent that. Um, Scott McKnight says something very similar. He says the parable describes the repentance of a sinful son in order to picture the restoration of the nation. In it, the individual act of repentance represents the prototypical act of the true Israelite. And I think it's, I know people have challenges with N.T. Wright looking at all of these <laughs> parables and saying that it's about Israel, but I don't know. I, I well, yeah, once you get into scholarly world, you can debate everything. So it gets, I think um, the thing that was intriguing to me when you take a parable like this and overlay it on Israel, there's two things. Number one, it connects us, this parable, to the long story that we've been talking. For those of you who've been around Spark or if you've been, uh, you know, a Christian for a while, you know that this story comes in a long line of what happened to Israel as a people. So, Think Genesis, think Exodus, freedom out of Israel, think the prophets. So it, it reminds us of that long tradition that even what Jesus is doing here can be a both and. It, it, it can be a really brilliant teaching about my own personal spirituality and my own personal repentance and God's amazing love for me, regardless of however I repent or not repent. But it's also a reminder that that one story is connected to a grand story that God is doing through the people. The second thing that I think is important, why I appreciated you pointing, pointing that out, is that Israel is always um, another metaphor for that this is a community action as well. So the idea of God's love or the sons being either religiously elite or squandering can actually be a truism about a community, a group of people. Now think in your minds, if you can, of a religious group of people, let's say in America. Uh, could either one of that group could that group of people be considered either the older son or the younger son? And could God's love and kindness be extended even to that community as well? Maybe we can think about Spark as a community as well. Uh, so thinking about these fundamental principles and teachings in communal terms is also part of why I think it's important to think about uh, Israel as, as part of the metaphor. 
Um, as we, this was not in the notes, but I am really kind of curious um, as we kind of come to a close here. First of all, does anybody have any questions? We usually do this over the YouTube live where you can type in your question. It's a little bit more scary to say it out loud, but to say, are we doing? Because you can, you can totally ask any question if you want. Oh, Danielle wants to talk about how God is a woman. <laughs> so if you notice in the story, there's a sheep, there's a coin. And there's a son, but there's also a shepherd, a woman, and a father. And what's important about that is when Jesus is making these metaphorical claims about who God is, he's using a woman as a metaphorical image um, for God, which in some circles can be tremendously scandalous. And it's really brilliant how it's subversive, but not so subtle at the same time. So part of the conversations that you have around what we usually talk about with gender and gender identity, and you know, Pastor Omer did an amazing talk uh, several months ago on why do we call God he? Answer, don't. Thank you so much. Have a good, you know, um, but went through a much longer explanation as to the pronouns that we use and why we should also consider what those pronouns say to us when we use them. So in this particular parable with the sheep, the coin and the son, God is listed there metaphorically as a woman as well. So that's also part of the continual push that Jesus is doing as we consistently see of expanding the categories or exploding the categories that we think are the confinements for how we think about God and therefore how we think about others. I got an amen out there. Thank you, Helen. <laughs> so, okay. So here's what I want to close with. And, um, I'm, I'm deeply curious for the two of you. You guys have spent a lot of time in this parable. And, uh, I know that this particular, by the way, we should probably call this not the parable of lost things. We should probably maybe do this, the prodigal, prodigal father. Okay. There we go. So I fixed it. But it's not just the father. Because then you have talked about the shepherd. Oh, Father, mom, and okay, prodigal God, God, there, I did it, prodigal God. (laughs) Um, So my question is, what does this guy, what does this series of parables mean for you personally? I would be curious, what does this mean to you, given your background, given the journey that you're on, your current state? I would love to hear from both of you what it means for you, and then we'll close. Uh, if I had to conclude this three, which really is into one, uh, is thank goodness that the father's the hero of the story. Uh, not the wild younger brother or the pious older brother, because we can actually be both of these people on the same day. We make choices that take us you know, further and further away from God. Sometimes we're drowning in our shame while simultaneously resenting other people that we think are unworthy. You know, it is the human dilemma. The children are not good heroes in this story of the family God. The hero is the father, and that's the one that we should be watching. And so my takeaway from this, as I I think about it, is whether we've been far and full of shame or near and full of judgment, his message is consistent. He says, I am the father, and you are all my kids. And if you're here today and you feel like you're leaning more into the older child where uh, uh, maybe you are doing things uh, well enough. There is no scarcity of love or mercy or affection in God's house. 
it will never run out. And if you happen to be at a point where you feel like you've been running, maybe going away from God, maybe feel a little shame in that regard, uh, his message is simple. It's, I miss you. It's come home. Come home. We should feel confident in God's house. We should feel easy to come to God's community. But the truth is, in our world, we either get it in our heads that God is not who this parable says, or we fear what our community says who God is. And I say rely on this parable to know that ultimately the Father loves you. And lean into that. I think that's beautiful, Tom. You put it better than I could. But I think for me, when I read this, it's like the God of our story is a God that runs to the lost, right? The thing that's consistent about all these parables is this intense proactivity of like not a single lost person goes unnoticed, not a single person who's on an unkingdomly path is forgotten. And that to me is so beautiful and powerful and a message that's easy for us to forget in the day-to-day of our lives and even in the day-to-day of reading scripture. So to me, it's that proactivity of our God and the intense, like the love here is intense, it's compassionate. Um, and this is a God that runs, right, across a village where everybody thinks that this is the opposite of what he should be doing to go and find a son. So for me, I guess the takeaway is what does it look like for us to love in the way that God loves in these parables? Yeah, it's interesting, the, um, the love, the word, he's filled with compassion. That's that word I used back when we did the Good Samaritan. I butcher it. It's spontaneity. It's Greek, but it means this love that is so strong in your inner gut. It's in your intestines, and it compels you to go care for this person that was on the road. And it's the same word that is used to describe this father who is so in love with his son and so happy he's come back. He has to go to his son. That is our God. And I think I would just, my persistent takeaway from stories like this, the natural impulse for us who are involved with faith or religion is to now focus on me and am I, which son am I? And stories like this remind me and I think encourage us, our eyes are on the wrong spot. We're focused on the wrong thing. It's never been about whether or not we're good or religious or in alignment or repentance. The focus here is persistently and rigorously on the character and the nature of who God is. And if our eyes can uplift from our own circumstance, our own pride or our own depravity, whatever that may be, then maybe as Romans 2 tells us, it's the kindness of God that will lead us to repentance. It is to no longer focus on ourselves, but to focus on who God is and what kind of God this Jesus tells us God is. And to keep our eyes solely focused there and let that focus and let that relationship, let that commitment drive us to the kind of life from wherever we might happen to be. And I'm sure we're on a spectrum of older son and younger son at times too, right? Um, So wherever we might happen to be, remember that this is about the shepherd, the woman, the father, the God who is the very exemplification and manifestation of all of our hopes and dreams in fulfilling our insecurities or our pride. So focus on God. 
God's love, compassion, kindness, and mercy. Thank you, too, so much. We so appreciate all the time you've put in. There is so much more. Please make sure that you say hello to them uh, afterwards. Right now, we'll move into a time of communion where we are once again reminded of this amazing love and grace. And uh, as we have done every single week when we gather at this particular table, very much like the older or the younger son, all that God has is for you. We really don't care where you've been, where you're coming from, what you bring. The table is open to you because, as Danielle has said, it's not our table. It's God's table, and you are welcome. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. As we sing, please come.